Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. From the complexities of legacy infrastructure to the nuances of modern app development and the ever-evolving threat landscape, banking is faced with balancing performance, speed, and security every day. Join us in this episode of the Banking Transform podcast as we sit down with Michael Wiley, the VP and Chief Technology Officer of F5, to explore the multifaceted world of banking cybersecurity within the context of digital transformation. Wiley's expertise offers practical guidance for all banking executives seeking to strike the right balance between innovation and protection. As the banking industry continues to transform its businesses, the wisdom shared in this episode serves as a beacon for securing a safer and more resilient future. Today's threat landscape presents multifaceted challenges for securing banks. As financial institutions transform their front and back offices, legacy technical debt, API ecosystems, AI, and other dynamics introduce increasing array of risks. Michael, welcome to the show. Could you introduce yourself and give our listeners a quick look at your extensive background and describe F5s for those who are unfamiliar with your firm? Sure, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is uh, super exciting. We're in a we're in a an amazing time as it relates to financial, uh, you know, community and and um, our uh, financial institutions, the market. And uh, security and cybersecurity as it relates. Um, I'm Michael Wiley, uh, VP of Applications and CTO at, at F5 Networks. Uh, been with F5 for about three years, a little over three years now. Um, prior to that, I did a, a stint at Google for a, a, a decade and JP Morgan for a, a while, for a few years. Um, and so um, I decided to go to F5 because F5 isn't just really this unique um, uh, marketplace and opportunity where um, we're serving, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of applications. And some of our critical customers that we uh, work with are financial institutions, uh, governments, and retail. Uh, so we're beyond the traditional low balancer uh, view of the world that F5 has. Um, we have a significant security footprint, a distributed cloud, um, and we focus on continuing to expand that portfolio. So... We got to start somewhere. So can you give our listeners a little bit of an overview of the evolving threat landscape in banking as it relates to digital transformation efforts currently being embarked on? And how has cyber threats, how have cyber threats become more sophisticated and what's at stake? Well, there's a lot at stake. Um, I, I I would say this, Jim, as I, if you just step back and look at it, um, Computing resources, um, the internet, uh, the many um, uh, you know surface areas that now um, we have to contend with, uh, from mobile devices to the browser, etc. Um, you know, are, are they're, they're continuing you know growing in in the markets, uh, and so the threat landscape you know is growing exponentially as well, and so the the bad actors have the same tools that we have. Um, they have the uh, the AIs, the large language models. They have the machine learning, uh, you know, PyTorches, the SKLearns, the Python scripts. They have the capabilities to deploy these things. And they're very focused on, um, you know, the defense mechanisms and the practices and patterns that most financial institutions, you know, employ or deploy today. So um, 
it's probably not good that we would ever put our head in the sand to think that they're not trying to attack the most lucrative environment um, in the in the world, and that's some financial institution or entity. And so um, these are now becoming more and more pervasive, and they will continue to grow uh, and, and you know extend capabilities. It, it wouldn't even um, uh, go far to think about um, what. Um, you know, an AI surface using a, a Python library like LangChain could build, you know, um, a attack, you know, vector, you know, against someone's a particular account or an API endpoint. So, you know, I could get into a lot of the gory details about how that might show up, but the risk, the risk to the financial institutions, and I, and I think, um, it's, it's always been the risk. There's always a brand risk. Um, people, people walk. Uh, from institutions and, you know, they take their money and they go somewhere else. And I, I think it's, we've normalized this a little bit, Jim, where, you know, in the market you hear sometimes, oh, my data was leaked here or this, these people got, you know, this, they, you know, this retail company X leaked my data or this financial company Y leaked my data. And so we see these kind of um, cases show up and people, you know, kind of get compensated around the way. But for the most part, my opinion has, is that, We've kind of normalized this in the market. I don't see market shifts or changes because some data leak. But what you probably see is, um, you know, disposable income moving out of the bank, um, going somewhere else. Uh, what you probably see now is it's an M plus one problem where, okay, now my bank is tight on credit. I've got highest interest rates. I can't. And now there's a security problem that might make people completely move out of the institution and go to something else. Um, and so they've completely moved out of brick and mortar and it's all online, right? So um, we're, we're f the bank is faced with, um, you know, trying to keep this loyal customer that's been there for a very long time and will continue to be so um, as with, uh, you know, protecting them in the security with, through their security practices. And if they don't, uh, customers will walk. You know, it's interesting to say that because, you know, as we as consumers get more and more comfortable and have higher and higher expectations around digital engagement and digital usage, you know, at the same time, these same customers, myself included, get frustrated by some of the things that are out there to protect us because it doesn't make it as easy. It makes it more difficult. Right. How do financial institutions balance between offering a really seamless good user experience and ensuring good security? Yeah, it's a good question, Jim. I, and, and maybe I would um, uh, even propose that there's, there's really not a balance that's expected. Um, you know, so I need good security and I need good experience. Um, and, and, and I don't, you know, at the, at, you know, and that all has to exist for me. Um, so I would say to, you know, properly answer the question is um, you're you're going to make these now decisions as a business, as a financial institution to start moving your products and your services closer to that consumer in a lot more predictable, reliable, kind of low latent you know way. And that kind of solves the customer experience space, but it extends your security footprint and, and that surface. So what you what you then have to do is start building policies around that um, as you start you know growing and these might be 
um, forcing functions for you, if you're, especially if you're dealing with some compliance or regulatory thing. It's, it, you know, I, if I'm going to Singapore or if I'm going to the UK or if I'm involved in a certain fintech in a different market, I need to um, address the customer experience scenario and I need to address the security policy controls in that, in that market, in that, in, uh, in that app. So um, I'm I'm contending that there's a it, there's not about it's, it's it's not necessarily a balance it's a must have on both sides. Yeah. You know it, it's interesting because whenever you know I get I'm on an app of any sort and it all of a sudden asks me for to actually type in my my security code. The reality is I get frustrated because I think you know geez you have it you know you know me I maybe use my my biometric my facial ID or something like this. And I realize it's for my good, but it creates frustration and it creates that dynamic that says, you know, why, why can't we make this easier? So it, as you said, it's not an either or, it's, it's a both, but it's, it's making it so the customer also understands why it's important for them or we give them a better option. Um, you know, it's interesting because every financial institution right now is using multiple systems. You know, if they were all the legacy systems, they'd fall behind on every front. If they're all the digital systems, they've spent a lot of money, but it doesn't guarantee security. But it's that mix, I believe, that concerns me. You know, I, I'm not a security expert by a long shot. But if I think about my financial institution, I realize they have some legacy um, technical debt. They have some, the multiple generations of infrastructure what is the cost and complexity of actually making security work when there's so many different systems interacting with each other? Yeah, it's a tough one. I think we have to be a, a tad bit empathetic to the uh, financial institutions here. Um, you know, they they build amazing products, and in the past, and then technology shifts and changes have happened, and you know, uh, this um, difficulty of staying you know very uh, regulated and um, you know controlled and, and secure. Also creates a bit of a, 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 a slow of adoption and or innovation sometimes, and so now there's a lot of pressure in the market to innovate, to integrate, to be in a particular product or cloud or service, etc., and provide yet another uh, capability feature into an app. Um, so when you when you look at legacy systems, you know you're really stuck with the the fact that DB2 is not going away, the mainframe is not going away. Um, you know, and uh, MQ is not going away. So all of these things have to be maintained and supported. What tends to happen is, and I think this is where you're expressing your frustration a little bit in, is people kind of move from the old to the new, the new shiny object, the, the feature in the, in the app that they want to go build into these other services and find themselves, I have to spend a lot more time, you know, trying to get out of this legacy and in this middleware or these lower tier environments. Um, they have a natural propensity to decline. They they get left alone. Um, they you know they it's a cost that you have to actually um, account for when you're looking at your digital transformation. What am I going to move out of that legacy space and place, or what am I going to keep? Um, and so, if you're just microservicing things and building additional API calls, and or trying to move to a public cloud or refactor your application. It is, an, it is imperative that you carry the legacy system costs and maintenance and operations and so it doesn't dilapidate over time and create another a particular vulnerable environment. Um, and so there's a there's a lot, there's a, a significant cost associated with that. Sometimes I see, I see it getting missed. Uh, so that's why you choose um, architectural decisions as well uh, to keep 
alive some of this legacy space in place, but also surface these new applications, API calls, and other um, inside uh, newer technologies and newer architects. So financial institutions now more than ever are using these composable solutions, these these Hmm. small solutions that basically take care of problems that every financial institution has. As you work with banks and credit unions, how do you help them test security and then validate security over time when there's so many different pieces, parts going on at the same time? Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's a continuum of uh, um, evolving uh, landscape because there's no one tool that fits all, Jim, to be honest with you. Um, you know, you're, gonna, you're going to continue to uh, grow your uh, unit testing and, and application testing um, as you're building new um, and and evolving um, or refactoring the old or keeping the old around and or the legacy. So um, what worked for the legacy environments doesn't necessarily work for the newer ones. And so how do you munge these things together? And, and so, you know, we tend to, um, you know, assume and or, you know, argue that this continuous integration, continuous deployment, the CICD pipeline with all of its checks and balances and flags of things uh, could get that done. It's not all in that either, right? So this takes a very unique approach to building a security test suite, how you're going to um, unit test, how you're going to build customer experience testing, how you're going to pen test your environment, you know, what kind of logs and things you're going to be checking, how are you going to consume all this data and then sift through it. And that's a, um, uh, it's it's an evolving uh, art, um, you know, for the security teams. And, uh, and every environment is different, you know, and so we have to, you know, fig- navigate ourselves uh, circumspectly through each environment, given the scenarios and situations that they're in. Well, it's interesting, too, because a lot of these composable solutions are not managed by the financial institution. They're, they're add-ons. And when you're working with a financial institution, how do you stay on top of not only what's going on in the marketplace from a security risk standpoint, but when you're bringing on new applications that are not managed by the financial institution themselves, but they're from a third-party provider or from a fintech firm, hmm. how do you as a, as a company work with the finance institution to continually validate that something else hasn't changed in the mix. Yeah. I, and, and this is where I get I, I kind of reference that. And as far as the architectural decisions that you end up making, um, you, you need to integrate with a service, a FinTech. This is, um, you know, zero trust works the other way, right? It, not only from zero trusting the ingress side and from people coming in to access an API call, I could also not, I could also apply the same principles to a API call service to like Zelle or to a PayPal or to a right. different service. I, like I don't, I, whatever I send you and whatever you send me back, I mean, we have to live in this trust, but verify space, right. And, or zero trust and, you know, run our policies there. So I can still maintain it from an architectural financial, you know, uh, entity data center app, you know, uh, core business and surface my API through like an API gateway service or, and do those API calls with the Zells and the PayPal's. I'll use those examples um, and do trust, but verify there and do authentication authorization there, do policy control and management there, uh, do something in that space. So I can continually validate things that are going out the door and things that are coming in the front door. So 
you mentioned zero trust and, and it's gaining a lot of traction in the marketplace. Could you explain a little bit about what this means in the context of banking and how this could revolutionize the way banks approach cybersecurity? Well, I, I think um, we're at, what, it's 2010 since I think the concept came out or I, um, I forgot the gentleman's name that brought this up. Um, I'll figure it out when we get through the podcast probably. But uh, um, so zero trust is just this implicit, um, you know, I, I, I don't trust, just as the name says, I don't trust anything that's, um, you know, I'm communicating or is communicating to me. And so we, so the idea is to validate this at every stage and level of, of the interaction. Um, and so when it goes beyond the traditional thinking of what the, the banking institution or the finance institution and other enterprises had, where if I can just put a, a firewall and a router and, you know, have this perimeter security model that, you know, Everything else is protected from the back, from behind and inside the, inside the uh, infrastructure. And uh, it's just simply not true. And so now you need to employ these particular practices, such as zero trust. Um, Google had a beyond corp. And, and so now I need to know what, what device is communicating to me. Um, I, you know, who is the identity of this person? Are they authorized to do certain things, especially in a remote work environment as well as a consumer environment, right? So I need to always just be taking this position of, I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. And I therefore will interrogate and validate everything that you do as you're coming in to access any one of my services. So um, that revolutionizes the bank in a way that says, um, we can now move faster, um, more securely. We can sleep better, right? That knowing that our systems are not as compromised because we, we've built these policies of, of, of extending now the perimeter security thinking more to the edge, but at a higher level than just the you know, IP address and port and, you know, 443 SSL, a couple of header checks, that doesn't work anymore. We have to actually extend that capability to where we're continually interrogating the client and the app and the service. And we're validating that everything coming in and everything going out is exactly the way we expect it to be. And it's secure and safe. You know, it's interesting, you just brought it up, the fact of the, the remote work, you know, with the rise of mobile banking and remote work, Obviously, the attack surface has expanded exponentially. I mean, it's global as opposed to regional or local. How can banks effectively secure their operations while still accommodating the growing trend towards remote work? Yeah, I, I would uh, you know go back to just that previous uh, answer a little bit. Um, I, you know, we, we built collaborative tools um, to be collaborative anywhere in the world, right? Uh, and so COVID almost was a forcing function to get to start now using all of these tools and capabilities. Um, at the same time, expose a significant opportunity, right? Which was, I need to now surface all of this internal assets, internal applications of things externally, so my remote workforce can access this in a more programmatic and you know, reasonable, reliable way. Um, which opened up a lot of opportunities for, you know, companies like F5 and, you know, to come in and say, we can secure those and we can surface those APIs in that layer. Um, so I think the any enterprise, financial, retail, et cetera, you know, has to make these decisions to say, um, we need to provide the ability to um, uh, accommodate and now, now a mobile workforce um, be it through a mobile application or through a remote 
uh, worker in a particular part of the world and surface up whatever tools and capabilities that they need to do in order to be effective and do their job. And we can take these same practices of zero trust. We can take these same practices of, in, of trust, but verify and interrogating things as they come in and access these services. And that needs to be part of your overall plan um, because you're going to scale. If you're going to scale into a market, you're going to bring on new users. You're not going to go brick and mortar at this stage. Usually um, that'd be a, that'd be a significant cost in this market anyway, but you would definitely not go, you know, try to rebuild or brand in, um, I'll use, uh, you know, in, in APAC, um, if you're a U.S. company and build a bunch of real estate assets and a bunch of people there, you're probably going to go start with a remote workforce. And so we have to build this into our overall security posturing. So in other podcasts, we've talked to people that talked about identity and mm. authentication. Is there a future? Because as a consumer, we all have the same concerns that financial institutions have, but just in a different scale and, and a different way. Is there a future where there could be security as a service where the financial institution could actually sell or partner with consumers and small businesses to provide them the security um, discipline that they have to have for their organization? I, I think there is. Um, I think there's an opportunity. Um, I I don't know, uh, you know, what they have taken the market is, but I think that here's what's interesting about um, maybe new markets that the financials could get into, and per, because they are one highly regulated, um, they have to go through a, a, a ton of more hoops um, to uh, secure their data and the, the services that they offer. I think you generally are wanting to share a bunch of data if you're banking with someone or if you're doing financial transactions, be it investments or not, or real estate, et cetera. So I think the the bank is in a great, or the financial institution is in a great spot to provide these levels of services that then they could obfuscate or they could be the mediator between another service and for validation reasons and, and so on and so forth. Um, it, you know, I, I think you always have a, a, se a sector of the world that's going to say, that's too much information. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, and then, but you also have like me and I would go, but you already have it anyway. Right. So it's like being afraid of the government. It's kind of like going, okay, you know what? where do you think yeah, you're going to stop it? Yeah. yeah. I don't know why you would, why wouldn't you offer the service? You know, because yeah. I don't want to, because actually the truth is, Jim, I don't want to give it to anybody else because I'm extending my um, threat landscape and my, in, you know, in points as I continue to offer more about me to everyone. So if I was giving all of my data to an Amazon and all my data to a Google and all of my data to a bank and all my data to some, so now I've, I've extended my threat uh, landscape, you know, and, and surface area. I'm, I'm kind of okay with the bank offering a, a proxy service to, to allow for those things to happen at an identity level. And by the way, it, it helps a lot on the fraud side. Um, you know, so if you were doing multi-factored through a banking institution and validating certain things, even from a, you know, a general, you know, back and forth payment transaction level stuff, I would have no problem with that. And by the way, fintechs are building this way too. Well, it's interesting because you think about the, the, the remote, uh, cameras and everything else we do to secure our homes. Mm -hmm. But I think of the ways, the different ways that people are trying to attack my computer every day with different things. I can, you know, push this button and get this invoice that you owe me or whatever it may be. And I, I know don't touch any link, don't do anything unless you know it's from, and even then, you know, validate your zero trust security in a way. But the reality is consumers are being hit in so many different ways. And there are organizations such as yours 
that are going so deep into what can happen, you're always going to be a, at least kept up with the cyber criminals and making it more difficult. And then it becomes just like when you do with your car, the more security I put in place, the less likely that I'll be the one that's hit. They're going to go for an easier hit. It, it just seems to me to be, you know, we look at all these other banking as a service things and embedded banking and all these other elements that an embedded security protocol that's sold by or offered by my finance institution seems to make sense. You know, speaking of these third parties, open finance and embedded banking, what are the security implications of open finance and embedded banking when you're really partnering with non-financial institutions as opposed to people that have to actually sell to financial institutions? Yeah, I, I think, um, how would I summarize that, Jim? Not all... APIs are created equal, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, so you, so the um, the level of trust. If you think about just from a personal interaction, like me and you, we know each other, we trust over each other over time. We we can have these dialogues and these interactions. And if you did something that was a little bit off, you know, center, and I did something that was maybe a little bit off center, you might degrade my trust, right? And you might, you know, uh, not trust me so much in this circle of friends or things like that. So yep. extend it out to API calls, right? Extend it out to whomever you're making calls to. I'm making calls to a to another fintech or to a retail service or to a crypto exchange or whomever, right? And so what you really want is a bit of a, a policy engine and mediator in between those API calls that is looking at it from this thought, right? This thought of, I'm, I, I trust you to this point. And then if you go a little bit further and we've had this interaction for a period of time, I trust you a little bit more. And I continue to trust you until I until you give me a reason not to. Right. Right. And then when and then when you give me a reason not to, I back I back out of that a little bit more. And maybe I come back in a little bit further. So um you're sending, you know, if you're an institution like um JP Morgan, you're sending stuff to Zell. And Zell sending stuff back to you. Now, through the message formatting of things, those protocols make sense and the formats look great and stuff like that. But what if Zell just kept on sending the same transactions a thousand times over because they were compromised? You have to have a system that sits there and says, hey, wait a second, Zell, you've been, you have you've got it, you've got issues here. You need to back off of what you're doing. So we would try to argue that that's a denial of service kind of approach to it. And so in the case of like F5's thinking, sometimes is we look at it this way. We look at it like um, regardless of who you are, what API calls you're going to make in the world, um, they need to be secure and we need to trust them. They need to trust you. And we need to be able to um, have these interactions in a very you know, safe and secure manner and provide a policy that you can implement across, regardless of where the cloud, what, what, where the product exists in the world. The product can exist in any public cloud or on an on-prem in a data center. But if you're not servicing these APIs or these kind of calls through an entity like uh, a gateway service or a particular API, you know, gateway um, thinking or policy thinking, um, then yeah, you're at risk and, and your logic has to be built in the application and that's not, that's not reasonable. Yeah. So when you walk into a financial institution, what is the most common challenge you see financial institutions have that you help solve? It's going to be um, the digital transformation moving from uh, you know your legacy to your um, future environment or the future infrastructure that you're moving into, and then bringing that same kind of F5 experience with it, 
Um, so that way you're not having to put, a, again, technical debt. You're not having to re reinvent the wheel every time you walk in. You know, I'm moving X app to Y location. I can bring, you know, I can literally bring that with you um, as an FI, uh, you know, um, customer. You can also, um, we also bring really in just security and, and observability awareness, right? Um, this is a data, 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 data-driven world. Um, brother, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we have to sift through We're not going to have less. Yeah. Right? You know, we, we don't have, we have, we have more data than we know what to do with. And we're, and we're still trying to, you know, figure out what, what is the data that we should be paying attention to and when. And I think when you, when you put something like an FI product in your business, I, I we help solve a lot of that problem. So really it's, it's as organizations have expanded their partnerships, their, their platforms, the way they integrate, the way they they latch on different systems together, that's where you really come in. That's the challenge that most organizations are having to solve. They were able to solve for their organization when it was just one legacy platform. But now that they're bringing other elements in from the outside, you know, it, it you, you bring them the security, literally, of being able to work with those different platforms, correct? Yeah, and that's and, and you can kind of think of it like system thinking. Remember when the system used to be just a machine and a database and an app and you know, that one call, right, you would make to that one system. Now that system has grown to be, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of endpoints, and maybe if not, you know, applications and or nodes or servers inside of an infrastructure, not just one infrastructure, many, right? And so in different parts of the world. And so when you look at it from a whole system level approach, F5 is kind of like in the middle of these AP, of these calls, right? As a user comes in through the front door, they're going across an F5, you know, usually in a load balancer or a, a web application firewall or security layer, and then they're hitting that application. So you've got a lot of validation checkpoints and, and capabilities there. In our distributed cloud products, it's kind of the same thing. You're actually bring as you're doing the digital transformation, you're bringing your app out of your data center into a distributed cloud endpoint, right? And you're surfacing that API to the rest of the world. You might move your backend app to or the middleware or the backend service into an AWS or a Google or Azure, but those API calls are secure through that you know vehicle as well as the um, what you're surfacing out to the rest of the market. So F5 just kind of plays. Um, uh, as a as a proxy, as a service, as a capability from a security layer uh, throughout all of your transformation, be it on-prem, off-prem, et cetera. So part of the digital transformation many organizations is moving to the cloud. Hmm. There was a time not too long ago that virtually every organization talked about the cloud, but was really afraid from a security perspective moving to the cloud. Has the cloud become so advanced and so much easier to manage given the the scale of the data being managed that that actually cloud environments are are more secure in most cases than if a person organization I should say an organization stays within their legacy platform the question you really get gets down to Jim is that are you going to take your 100 million dollar multi-billion dollar business and give it to you know a a computing resource sitting in some cloud somewhere and say, you know, ship and pray, right? And um, I I tend to say they're not going to do it all, <laughs> right? They'll do some pieces of it. And so this is, it, I, you know, are cloud secure? Yes. Or do, every, is everybody, you know, computing resources and storage and security practices, you know, these are all 
cloud commodities at this point, right? And, you know, in regards to whatever public cloud you go into and whatever market, they're all going to have, you know, generally the same thinking. I think it really comes down to a, a fundamental challenge of what are you doing with your security policy? And where and, and do you have one that, that universally works um, across any cloud environment? Are you always going to be with an AWS? Are you going to use just AWS for your ML platform? Or are you going to use Google for that? Or are you going to put your front ends only in Azure and your ADFS and your authentication layer there and that's it? And how are you surfacing and iterating all of these other components of your application? And I think it just comes down to the security team has to come up with a very good security policy layer that works across all of these environments. And that's a, that's a significant challenge because you're you're playing this game, right? You're playing, um, I assume you're gonna be secure and I, I can validate that to a point, um, but I'm gonna check everything coming in the front door, like I said earlier. I'm gonna validate everything as it comes in. I'm gonna see what calls are being made, where, to whom, to how, and what's being leaked in and out. If not, I will be at risk and vulnerable and, and therefore um, it's not a good policy. Uh, so. I think I think that's it, Jim. I, I don't think I want to. I wouldn't be critical of any cloud. It's not a, a checkbox type scenario, yeah. right? So you know, AI and machine learning were really used first in the risk and fraud areas. I mean, they, where you started monitoring transactions and saw anomalies. It's it's being used more and more to enhance cybersecurity, but it's also being used more and more to create cybersecurity risks. How do these technologies play a role in both anticipating and mitigating risks? And what are some real world applications right now in banking? Yeah, so well, we're not getting away from it, right? I mean, so AI and ML are like words we have to, and letters we have to maintain in our vocabulary for the rest of our lives. Um, so the um, truth of the matter is, like I said earlier, bad actors and good actors have the, both the tools. Um, the data sets and the uh, the mass amount of data that, that are, is flying now and, and coming to the enterprise and the uh, you know security teams and inside any one of these financials is unimaginable. It's it's really just unimaginable, uh, you know. And so, you know, to solve for get to ground truth right really fast is um, you know something that where ML and AI has to has to play a role. Now, I, I think there's a little bit of a, how would I say it, a buffer in this. If you're, a, I would pick on JV Morgan for a second. If you're a JV Morgan, you, you have, let's just say, 100 million users. And, you know, I don't think you're doing 100 million transactions every second or every minute of the day, right? A banking transaction is pretty short-lived. It's pretty ephemeral, I, you know, and so... It, that doesn't mean that the app that they're not taking the app data and other types of information. So I say that today, um, there's a you get a bit of a pass. Some, but in the future, I don't think you get that pass at all. You want remember the cross border payments. The I need to send data from you know now it's no longer um, a, you know a three day business tour right. Um, it's a one second you know, uh, transaction, you know, validation and ship it to a, any entity in the world. And so those level of transactions exponentially grow and they will be now at the burden of the feet of the, of the security teams. Right. Um, and so they have to solve for that. And that's where the machine learning and the AI stuff starts to come into play. They have to go back over their fraud and, and anomaly detection, you know, type of business. And they have to now change the surface or change the particular patterns and things that they're paying attention to the bad actors show up as well, 
right? Uh, so as these things continue to evolve, you're fighting this new kind of mining data, digging through resources and surface you know, and, and surfacing things that we should be paying attention to, and even instrumenting your application and uh, you know uh, infrastructure to allow you to catch that even earlier. Um, but I argue that that that's um, an organic, natural course. I, I, you, we're all going to get there, um, aka five, aka you know that let's let's get there together. But it's but it's going to be a it's going to be a significant run for sure. So, looking ahead, or maybe looking at today, what keeps you up at night? What scares you? What scares me? From a banking yeah. security perspective, oh, yeah. by the way. <laughs> yeah, like, I, like, I mean, you opened the door, bro. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm glad you put the uh, classification. You know, um, I, you know, it's a good question, too, because I, I really, um, I, I want to, I think what scares me is my, I, my identity, um, my current footprint, and the things that are being shared as it relates to my activities. I, you know, as it relates to security, um, I want to trust an entity like a JP Morgan, um, you know, a Chase. I want to know that you've secured everything. Like it's this is your data, my data. We have this implicit trust relationship, and I've given my given you my money. We have these kind of you know uh, relations where you know I've got a mortgage for you, I've got insurance, I've got other things, right? Other instruments that I've used to your to your um, uh, institution, and I want to know that. I'm, it's safe, right? Um, I want to go to a search engine and know that I'm safe as well, right? I want to go to another entity and know that I'm safe as well. I tend to think that that's not the case today. Um, and not because of JP Morgan or a search engine or another entity, it's because I don't think that we've made this in the right amount of investments um, and paid attention to this in a you know, very uh, practical, programmatic way to go, I, I need to make sure my customers, you know, completely safe in it. I'm not going to share this data. If you took uh, what, you know, the, what the lawsuits that have, that have just been kind of, you know, right. ratified or, you know, or come up, you know, with different social media companies, you know, and the things that they've had to pay out for losing data, sharing data, so on and so forth. So I think that my kids have to worry about that. You know, I, I've done pretty well. Um, in my own, you know, uh, thinking, logic, and experience, but you know, my kids—they have to worry about where, where's my data, where's it going, to whom is it going, because yeah. the attack, the attack vectors is this: Jim. if I knew that you had an Amazon account and a Netflix account and a Hulu account and a Spotify account, and I could somehow compromise any one of those accounts, and I see some pattern over there, I could probably move that same logic from a username, password, thinking, and other types of credentials over to your banking account. And so, as soon as I compromise one of those things, I'm 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 into your your other banking account right now, right? And that could be Starbucks gift cards, you know. And yeah. so you get what I'm saying, right? So I think that's where we have to be careful. I'm I'm laughing because you just scared. Instead of what keeps you up at night, you now have put you know you scared me. You've made it because it's the reality. I mean, and it's also interesting because in my daily life. I probably trust Amazon as much or more than any other organization. They have not had flaws. They have not had, you know, they have not had infrastructure issues. They have not had risk issues. Yeah. However, you just brought a very good point that says, okay, you may be okay there, but if you shared a password with your 
XYZ account, with your bank account, with other things. It, you may They may be safe, but something else that the human has done, beca- because what's interesting is securing yourself is not easy. You know, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but but having 8,000 passwords and, you know, one, I only have one face, so I love everything that uses my face as my, my password. But even that, you get worried about what can happen with AI. So, okay, so final question. I'm a I'm a CIO. I'm a I'm a, mm. a I'm a a key element of a financial institution. What is the one thing I need to do today to move me forward from a cybersecurity risk standpoint? Yeah, I, front and center, right uh, in my mind is you know it's really about sometimes taking inventory, Tim. Initially, I, I think. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And, and, and this is where I, th- I think people are a little bit of, a little bit of fearful and afraid of that. And, and so I think you live with the, the way the world is sometimes not the way you want it to be. And, and so you have to do some significant inventory and analysis of this, of the world you're in. Um, and sometimes that goes back to the zombie API discussion, it goes back to the legacy infrastructure, right? And in part of your digital transformation strategy, take inventory. And those things that now that you have inventory, you can start making the next first decision, which is I'm gonna, as I modernize these applications, do certain things, I don't have to change the whole infrastructure. If you gave a CISO a billion dollars today and said, go, it would be impossible to impl- implement and proliferate that much technology in any short period of time, in any financial institution in the world, no matter how much money you gave them in a budget, right? across all aspects of the technology that the market wants you to have, right? From ZTNA, from the, you know, the last sort of firewalls, everything. By the time you were done, right, you'd be years into this game, right? And, a, and probably not a billion, but, you know, it'd be a significant chunk. So if you're going to do something today, I take inventory and I would start working towards this surfacing APIs in a very predictable manner that you have this API management service that you can now start leaning in on additional levels of controls you, through a policy or through you know different authorization authentication services these are things that you should just have like they should just exist today and yeah. I, I look at it like an embassy you don't roll up on an embassy without some concrete walls and a security guard right and you know and a passport check and an appointment and a you know like so you can't walk into an application in the in the, in the current world today and say oh well that app lives in amazon and that app lives over in azure and that app lives over in google and so you're doing all different levels of policy management controls and different things you're 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 exposing this potential risk right and creating an environment because of a lack of an api management solution right 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 you know, I mean, so, you know, and, and inventory, we, zombie API exists because people forgot that they opened up an API in some point and they left it and the people moved on to a different role or job or something and worked on something different. And they go, oh, no, we left that API open and it's sitting somewhere. Right. And so, well, API management is intended to solve some of that and security in APIs is through an API management. So knowing what you deciding what you have and what you knowing what you know, what you have in your environment and then deciding what you're going to do from an API management viewpoint, then decide, then we'll tell you, 
that ha- I don't need to throw a lot of money at that API because I'm because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm just gonna shut it off. It's not gonna be existing in tomorrow, and that's just a simple control. There's nothing there. Yeah. Or here's the data and the schemas that I'm surfacing right on this API. This is super critical. So we don't rack we don't rank and stack these APIs as severity. I would argue that every sorry, well, th- th- a little bit on my tangent here. I'll, I'll get off here. <laughs> um, it, it if if it would be interesting to talk to a CISO and say this. What are the top 10 APIs and what are, what, are, what are the risks that they have that you have with respect to those APIs in your business right now? Like, tell me the top 10. Tell me the top 10 by traffic, by users, by risk, category, yep. by something. If you can't tell me that, you're not doing an API strategy, right? And, 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 and you don't have the policies and controls in place that you need. That's what I would tell them to go focus on. You know, it's very interesting, Michael, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, Every financial institution should have a company like F5 come in and ask you the questions that you're scared of asking yourself. It, it's, it's that simple. Because the reality is yeah. the questions themselves will move an organization forward and make them uncover things that they may have not have thought of. And oh, by the way, have that as a regular process because these questions change over time. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's a subject we don't cover very much, but when we do, it's it's in, it's enlightening, if from not from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint as well. So I, I really appreciate you having me on the show today. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate being here. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate the support we have received to make this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hathledge, audio engineer, Chris Fafalias, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Remember, innovation propels us forward, but it's the harmonious marriage with security that ensures we arrive safely. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.